Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So... I will, I'll ask a question, which I, which I hope leads into your reading. Um, I found this book, I mean, this book is so arresting politically, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But as a writer, I was also really excited by it, because it does something which is so technically difficult, which is a revolving set of first-person voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always worry when, when I start a book like that, that... Because when you're a writer, you treasure these little moments where you can put in an insight or you can put in something. Ian McEwen says those are the moments you have for yourselves. Like, they're not even for the reader as much. But the gap is so narrow with you between your voice as a writer and the characters. In other words, I never felt as if I was out of the character's own narratives, even though there's Nora, who's Mm -hmm. the daughter of a murder victim in the Central Valley, and there's Jeremy, who's an Iraq war veteran, and... Driss and Mariam, who are immigrants from Morocco. So my question was, I suppose, A, how did you manage it? And B, did the form come first to you when you were thinking about writing a book about immigrants in America and their experience? There's also a a Mexican immigrant. Um, Did the form come first, or did the idea come first and then the form follow? And how did you manage those that sort of polyphonic um, style, which is so difficult to pull off? So the short answer is the idea came first and the form followed. Um, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I, I started working on this book in the summer of 2014. I had just turned in the copy edits for the Moore's account. And it was a historical novel, and it involved like five years of research. And I was tired, and I was, you know, I want to work on something completely different. But first, a vacation. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so we went on vacation, and, and towards the end of that, um, I received the text uh, from my sister saying that my my father had uh, taken ill, and he was in the hospital, and he was in a really bad shape. Uh, and so we packed up, and we went to Morocco. Um, and he's fine now; he's perfectly fine. He's sharp as a tack. Uh, but when I came back, I brought that fear with me that someday I am going to get that phone call, or someday I'm going to get that text. And it's a, sh- a fear I feel that I share with millions of immigrants in this country, and not just people who were born abroad, but even people who are sort of internally. Uh, have internally migrated, that they're going to be away when their loved ones need them. And I wanted to write something out of that fear as a way to sort of almost like exercise it. So that's where the idea came about. And because I did not want to just write about death and grieving for 400 pages, <laughs> I thought I might make it interesting and have the, the sort of death be a bit mysterious. It's a hit and run. Um, the, the character is a Moroccan immigrant to the U.S. and he dies in this car accident and the question is like, is it intentional or is it a crime or, or whatever? Um, and so that's the idea. And so when I started working on the book, I thought I just spent you know, the last five years working in the first person mm. uh, from the point of view of this Moroccan slave. So I know what, I'm going to go back to the third person just as a break. And so I wrote... Well, there's that great Iris Murdoch quote that every book is written in hasty tactical retreat from the yes. last one. Yes, that so is exactly like, what oh, it I'm was. Oh, I'm going to go back to the third person. It's yes. going to be so freeing. Yes. But you went to... I, I found this so interesting because the Moore's account is this vivid first person. Yes. And now you're back And I was like, nah, I need a break. And, you know, and it's contemporary. It's going to be no research. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, this whole 
whole idea that you're going to somehow cut corners. It's the stupidest thing. And, and, you yeah. know, and then you do it every, with everyone. The next product's always going to be so easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So books are always perfect before you start working on exactly. them. And then as soon as you start working on them, everything sort of unravels. Um, so I, so it's, it, the first draft was in the third person. And it was uh, Nora, and it was Jeremy, and it was Coleman, who's the detective. Mm. So, you know, sort of like basically what you need in order to move forward a story about grief, which is the daughter discovering that her father has died, a story about love, and then the sort of the crime story, what, what is happening. And so I did that for two or three drafts. Um, and then I sent it to my editor, who's, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met him. He's kind of a character. I haven't. So, um, so he's, his name is Errol McDonald at Pantheon. And he has this phenomenal ability to ask the right questions. And he doesn't. Sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so, so when he got the book, he's like, oh, this is so wonderful. We're so proud to publish it. And it was like very complimentary. And then it was like this paragraph break. And it was like, but I wonder. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's wondering because it, the entire story, as you read it in this book, was in that previous draft, except it was from those three, uh, the points of view of those three characters. And he's like, well, I wonder, though, if you In first could, person. In, so it wasn't in the third, third person. In third person. Yeah, it's the wow. entire story, but it was in third person. And he was like, but I wonder about, you know, you've chosen these three characters, these three perspectives to tell the story from, but it's... Um, you know, you have all these phenomenal uh, sort of minor characters and what's going to happen with them and it'd be nice to kind of get their perspective. And I thought, surely you're not suggesting that I add like a bunch of other characters in the third person. Like, like I don't right. want to do that. And so I started thinking about it and I thought, okay, well, I could make it work in the first person, but then that would be a different book, wouldn't it? Um, so I cried. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, well, but I'm a professional, so I'm just gonna. <laughs> so I'm gonna try this for 50 pages and see whether I like it. Well, maybe though that's why that's, there's this uncanny sense that the voices are so individualized because yeah. you didn't begin with like a first. I feel like sometimes writers can make that mistake yes. where they're like, yes. "I'm Jeremy, the Iraq War veteran yes. with PTSD Hello, who can't sleep." <laughs> like, whereas you, it, it feels so organic, organic in your yeah. hands. Well, it's because they were already familiar to me long before I even started working in the first person. And so then when I did the first 50 So all you pages, have to do is just write in yes, the third person and then completely overhaul it. I don't recommend, it. honestly, I don't recommend <laughs> this way of working. So I did, I did 50 pages. Uh, I, and, and that was the task I set to myself. Uh, and I was traveling and I remember, uh, I, was, I think I was in DC at that point. First of all, when he told me this, I was, you know, I, he had sent me the email, but we got on the phone and I was at LAX. And I'm like crying in the oh. lights as I'm about to get on the, on the flight. <laughs> but so then I did the 50 pages, uh, and then I called my agent and I sent it to her. And she's like, "Oh my God, this 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 is really." This is where. And I did, and I, before I even got to the end of the 50 pages, I was like, "This this is what it needed." Did you just have that downhill I, feeling where you're like, suddenly, this is so easy to write, or were you? Well, it, it not easy to write, but more. It had. It was more fun to write, and it was more, frankly, it was much more of a challenge of the craft perspective, and I thought, I've already done the third person with the first two books, like, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be interesting to try this completely new challenge and learn something from it. Interesting. Uh, and so for me, then it became like this excitement that I'm trying something completely new. I, I don't like to do, like, each book, like, teaches you something that you bring into the next book. So, for example, with Moore's account, obviously I did tons of research, but I had to write a lot about landscape. So it's a skill that, because it's a story of exploration, so it's a skill that I was able to bring into this book. 
I had some experience with writing in the first person. Now I just had to kind of broaden it to all of these characters. And from there, it was just, you know, ass in chair, working every day for another three years. So. Well, so I think, I think, you're, <laughs> I, I think another three years, Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I think this leads oh, into... after the first three years, <laughs> so it's like... No, I know. I think this leads into my question, which is, is Nora Garraway, who's the daughter who returns to sort of investigate her father's murder, did she feel like your proxy, or do you feel as if you are equally present in every character? I mean, I knew that this was a question that would come up because we, we are both of the female persuasion and we're both Moroccan. Moroccan. <laughs> but crucially, we're of different generations, and she's born here, so she is American in a way that I will never be. And... Um, She's an artist, so that's something that I sort of can relate to. But in every other way, she's completely different from me. But I knew, I knew, of course, writing a character like that, I'm like, I'm going to get this question. Um, well, now maybe you'll read, and I'm dying to know which character you're going to read from. <laughs> so let's see. I, I Maybe the old racist bowling alley owner? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is why I told you it was fun to try out these different voices, because you get to write from the perspective of people that you wouldn't necessarily want to live next door to. Sure, sure. Um, but do. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't happen. So this is from the perspective of um, the mother. Her name is Mariam. And so she and her husband moved to the United States in 1981. And this chapter takes place on the night she finds out that her husband has been killed in this hit and run. I was trying to stay awake. Uh, so I switched on the radio and looked for Claudia Corbett's show on KDGL. Usually she's on at lunchtime and I listen to her while I'm peeling potatoes or chopping parsley. But the show is so popular that they rebroadcast it again at 10 p.m. That night, a young woman was calling in to say she had gotten married just six months ago, but she and her husband were already fighting because he wanted to move to Portland to be a nature photographer, and she wanted to stay at her job with an insurance company in Salt Lake City, and neither one of them would change their minds. Listen, Claudia told her sharply, the way she does sometimes when callers start to ramble and refuse to face the obvious. Nobody said that marriage was easy. Marriage is work. When we moved to America 35 years ago, many things took me by surprise, like gun shops next to barber shops, freeways that tangled like yarn, people who knocked on your door to talk about Jesus, 20 different kinds of milk at the grocery store, signs that said, don't even think about parking here. I remember pointing them out to Dries. They even have signs that tell you what you can't think. <laughs> but above all, I was surprised by the talk shows, the way Americans loved to confess on television. Men talked about their affairs or addictions or gambling problems. Women talked about their weight or plastic surgeries or the children they had outside marriage. Even teenagers had something to say, mostly about how terrible their parents were. And all of it like it was a normal thing. I couldn't stop watching. The television sat on top of the supply cabinet in the back of the donut shop, and while I was washing dishes or mopping floors, I would watch Sally or Donahue, which in those days were on in the middle of the afternoon when the shop was quiet. My brother had told me that watching television would help me improve my English, and I will say I learned a lot of new words like paternity test and artificial insemination and AIDS epidemic. But my trouble was pronunciation, how easy it was to say tree when I meant three, or utter when I meant other. I needed a lot of practice. In Casablanca, I had my two sisters, three uncles, and eight cousins. 
But here in California, my brother was the only family I had, and he lived 130 miles away from us. I hadn't realized how far that was until we went from seeing him every day to seeing him only once a month, and sometimes not even that often. For me, that was the hardest thing about living in America. Being so far away, it was like being orphaned. One day, we went to the Stater Brothers on the 62. We had been living in the Mojave for about nine months by then, but this was our first winter here and we weren't used to the cold. So I bundled up Salma in a green wool coat I'd bought for her at the Goodwill before we went to the store. She sat in the shopping cart, which was another thing that was new to me in America, but I let her. She liked the feeling of rolling around the store in the cart and I didn't see the harm in it. Looking through the coupons we'd clipped from the newspaper, I found a, dis I found a discount we could apply to a can of Hunt's diced tomatoes, but I couldn't see the brand anywhere on the shelf. I'm sure they have it, Dries said. He was like that. He always had faith, even about silly little things. So while he looked for the can, I waited, shivering in my denim jacket. Then a woman pushed her car past us, and in her wake, I caught the scent of rose water. Instantly, I was back in Casablanca with my sisters, putting our, putting our hair in rollers and trying on different colors of lipstick, looking at our reflections in the dresser mirror where a picture of Shadia was tucked into the frame, her hair in an elaborate bouffant we were trying to replicate. The radio was on. We were waiting for the DJ to play the Bee Gees. Our friends were coming by later to watch an Egyptian movie starring Roshdi Abaza. I don't know why I did this, but I followed the woman down the aisle and along the refrigerated section where she got milk and butter and eggs and juice, enough for a big family, and then to the corner display where she picked out one of the new E.T. lunchboxes with the alien and the little boy touching fingers and the light glowing between them. The woman had, a, had long brown hair, almost the same shade as mine, only she wore hers parted down the middle, and I remember that her coat had those huge shoulder pads that were becoming popular. She went into a new aisle, and I watched as she tried to choose a brand of baking flour from the dozens that sat on the shelf. Hello, I said. The woman turned around, her eyebrows lifting, her lips stretching into a tentative smile. My name is Mariam, I wanted to tell her. What is yours? Do you live nearby? What, what do you do? Do you have children? I have one daughter. She is three years old. Would you like to have tea with me someday? Are you baking a cake? I know a great recipe. You shouldn't use star flour, though. It's not good for cakes. But when I opened my mouth again, nothing came out. My heart was beating too fast inside my chest. Yes, she said. Can I help you? This is not good floor. What? Later, I would learn to sound out words in my head before I spoke them, the way I had been taught to do at school when we recited the poems of Al-Khansa' or Al-Mutanabbi, and our teachers would not tolerate a missing inflection or an incorrect agreement. But that day, all I felt was the betrayal of a foreign tongue. This, I said, is not good floor. She looked at the ground. I don't understand. Too thick. Lady, I have no idea what you're trying to say. Only now that I was close to her did I see that she had a beauty mark on her upper lip, just like my youngest sister, which I hadn't expected, and I stared at her even more intently. But I had already mangled what I tried to say, and I was afraid to make it worse. So I pointed to the flower and rubbed my belly and smiled in a way I hoped made my meaning clear. 
She shook her head and laughed, displaying crooked teeth yellowed by coffee, then put a box of instant baking mix in her cart and walked off. Standing next to the canisters of frosting, I started crying. That's where Dries found me later, crying next to the frosting. What's wrong, he asked, taking my hand. I didn't know how to explain to him that nothing was wrong, and yet everything was wrong. Salma was watching me from the cart, and I quickly dried my face. I didn't want to upset her, especially after she brandished the can of Hunt's diced tomatoes like a prize, a consolation prize. Where's the coupon? Dries asked me. I didn't have it. I dropped it somewhere along the way when I'd followed the woman from aisle to aisle, so I retraced my steps, but I couldn't find the little envelope where we saved all our coupons. It had taken us weeks to clip that many, and now Dries was annoyed because we would have to pay more for our groceries, and he bickered with me about it while we waited in the checkout line. We had to be extremely careful with money back then because we had just started our business. We worked hard in those early years. We worked very hard. And maybe we should have worked on our marriage too, like Claudia Corbett said. Listening to her that night in the car, I was thinking that we should try again, stop arguing about everything, learn to forgive ourselves and especially each other for our mistakes. But when I walked in, Dries wasn't home. Usually he was in his lounge chair doing his crossword puzzles. That was how he improved his English. He was obsessed with finding all the answers and hardly ever looked up when I walked past him on my way to the kitchen. But as I said, that night, the chair was empty, and he didn't pick up the phone when I called him, so I called Salma instead. It was 9.40. I remember the time because I was looking at the clock on the microwave while I talked to her, and she told me not to worry. Maybe he was having car trouble, or his cell phone was turned off. An hour later, the police came. Oh, thank you. That's so good. I, I'm such an... A, a a vehement opponent of symbolism, but you have this ability in this book to create these small, delicate symbols. It reminds me of, I'm trying to think, Ann Tyler or William Trevor, where the symbols don't seem like symbolism. <laughs> they seem like just natural part of life that takes on symbolic meaning. Yes, yes. Um, for instance, when he's trying to hang the curtains and she keeps correcting. Like, yes. um, <laughs> but another one of those is I, that I was actually thinking about and which maybe relates to this is I loved how, so their last name is Garrowy, and then there's a witness who's a Mexican immigrant, and he starts thinking of the the um, the victim of the hit and run as Guerrero, mm -hmm. which is, shares the same first five letters. Yeah. And that was another symbol to me of maybe the continuities between the immigrant experience. And yeah. I was curious if you were, like how, how you tried to approach immigration as a subject beyond, I believe this is your first novel that's not exclusively about Moroccan mm -hmm. or Morocco. Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering how you saw those correspondences between maybe, because obviously we're in a post-2016 world, <laughs> um, between the current maybe um, Hispanic experience and the Moroccan experience yeah. or the uh, Arabic experience. Yeah, yeah, it, that's an interesting point. So so the, the character, obviously, the undocumented immigrant, he speaks Spanish, and when he hears Guerrawi, the closest word to it that he can think of is Guerrero. And that obviously means warrior, and and it's and of course the guy kind of sort of visits him, and so um, in in his uh, dreams, and so it sort of haunts him. Um, I think for me, because I, I 
never intended to become an immigrant. It came as a surprise to me. Right. I, I came to this country to go to graduate school. And then uh, before I knew it, I was uh, married and mortgaged <laughs> and living in Los Angeles. And so I became an immigrant sort of by chance. But it's something that because it's changed my life so profoundly, it's something that I have given quite a bit of time to sort of like just thinking about the experience itself, both personally and privately, but also how it's um, written about publicly and how it's treated politically. And so the closest uh, population, so here in, in LA, you have obviously a number of Mexican immigrants. And then uh, where I'm from, I would be sort of like, if I went to France or Spain, then I would be treated the way that Mexican immigrants get treated here. And um, so there's, there's all kinds of parallels, all kinds of parallels between the two countries. So for example, the idea of the wall, there are two, there's, there's walls in Morocco, there's walls to the north, walls to the south, guess what? They don't work and they become these super militarized zones, people are dying. Um, so I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of, there are a lot of parallels this between the This seems like two. A, a tacit admission that you regret voting for Donald Trump. Bitterly <laughs> <laughs> every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, but it was one of those things where it didn't take a whole lot of work for me uh, to sort of um, put myself in the place of this character. Is I guess what I'm trying to say because I have that sort of shared experience of being an immigrant, even though in my case, obviously, I was documented and never had to worry about anybody, uh, you know, sort of like kicking me out. Well. <laughs> until recently uh, and so um but the slippages are the yeah, same yeah yeah oh yeah of course of course but like that's what i'm saying is that there is enough um shared personal experience that something that i can use as sort of a starting point in writing about the character even though you know the languages are different and the experiences might be different but the emotions are the same so like the sense of dislocation the sense that you're just out there trying to mind your own business and but you're also just by your very existence you're sort of a political prop that's being used by people from you know all kinds of all, all sides of the political spectrum and so that's that's an experience i can use to sort of well, and I noticed you were very careful. I mean, you didn't demonize immigrants, which is common human decency, <laughs> but you also don't valorize them. Like, you don't try to pretend that, that each of these immigrants is like a model immigrant who, yeah. I mean, and, and I found that refreshing because I think sometimes the goodwill of the author can yes. make them, can lead them to yes. write a character who maybe is slightly yeah yeah no it's definitely a danger i think in writing about lives that that become politicized uh, by people like trump or others is the temptation to say i'm gonna write against that stereotype right the problem is that if you write against that stereotype it means you're engaging with it, it it's almost a replication of the dehumanization it, it is it is because you're basically saying you can either like be this perfect perfect immigrant who's doing everything like literally i remember when when uh this whole wall controversy was was starting people were talking about the undocumented immigrant who was saving people from a fire in a building in brooklyn i'm like is <laughs> like i mean that's not something that most people are gonna do most people don't have the ability to right to you want the immigrant who's playing fortnite and smoking pot to have <laughs> like rights too like, like exactly and so so i think that the danger is that it, when you are engaging with these stereotypes it means you've bought into them it means you've given them legitimacy 
even if your intention is very good and you're trying to do the opposite of it, you're actually not doing those people any kind of service. And so in this book, it would have been tempting, uh, particularly after the 2016 election, to sort of like take the narrative in a direction where sort of like the Muslim immigrant is sort of like this upstanding citizen, but he's just the dude who, you know, yeah. is just like very flawed and has all kinds of problems in his life, so it's not... Uh, I, I had an, a question which is maybe a little strange, but which is sort of follows on from that, which is I read so much fiction professionally, and I was really fascinated because this is in some ways the first book I've read in, in years that really centers 9-11, um, mm -hmm. which I think has gotten, it's become sort of ambient. It's mm -hmm. like the world we all live in is post 9-11 world. Mm -hmm. um, but this book goes back to 9-11 as sort of a foundational idea of who, I mean, the the, the um, donut shop that they own is burned down after 9-11, mm -hmm. and Nora, someone writes raghead on Nora's mm -hmm. um, locker, okay. and then, of course, Jeremy goes through it. So I'm wondering, first of all, whether that was conscious, and second of all, whether you think maybe just now, are we just starting to write 9-11 novels? Because I think there's sometimes a cultural lag before we get the grade. Yeah, no, I understand. I think for me, because of the age of the characters, uh, it, it, was, it would have been impossible for me to write about this, uh, this person without putting 9-11 somewhere into her life, mm. because it had, an effect on pretty much every, you know, Arab and Muslim immigrant in this country. Uh, so I remember before 9-11, we used to be called Arabs, and then after 9-11, we started to be called Muslims. And oh, so that's fascinating. <laughs> yes. So uh, it was kind of a slow move, but now it's, you know, nobody wants to hear about where you're from. It's like, are you Muslim or are you not Muslim? And that's, that's how you're defined. And so there's like this Muslim experience, which to me is such a... It's, such, it's so frustrating because, of course, when you talk about, like, 1.8 billion people, you can't, like, yeah. there's, the whole idea of a Muslim experience is, is kind of insane. It's like Muslim experiences. So oftentimes I get asked, well, can you come on the show and tell us about the Muslim perspective? Yeah. And then I have to say, no, I can't. <laughs> um, so so in, in, in writing about the characters, um, in, in like about 30 years old and so in 2014 because the book is set in 2014 so then it meant that she was in high school when 9-11 happened so it had to be part of the story and once I knew that it was going to be a part of the story then I had to use it in, in all kinds of different ways and how you know the effect that it has on the family the effect that it has on her self-perception the effect that it has on the perception of others like how they perceive her and Jeremy's father basically tunes into Fox News and never right. tunes out. Uh, so it's it just it was very much a transformative event in American politics and led to the start of the Forever War. And so to me, it is it is it is an event that that kind of had its place in the narrative. I had to put it. I was in. just kind of excited by the idea that it might be re-centralized as something we can narrativize because it's it's I don't know it's almost been too big to write about. At any event. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what Miriam Miriam would watch now. I mean, now that Sally, what do you do? You think it would be Fox News? I'm well, afraid. No, no, would... she's oh, I, she might, but she's watching mostly the self help type. So she's listening to the radio where there is. Is that the... still on? What is the Miriam of 2019 watch? I don't know. Anyway, okay, can I ask <laughs> like, you? Yeah, I like ahead. to sometimes do this when I do these interviews. Can we do a speed round? Okay. Okay. I'm nervous. Because I always am so curious. I read books by people, and then I want to know all about them. Oh, my them. God. Don't ask me my favorite authors. We were like, this is the question that stresses me out the most. But go ahead. Okay. Let's see. Number one, who are your favorite authors? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I'm not going to ask that. Uh -huh. um, 
I was I was going to ask this. What book are you reading right now? Or was the last book we, you read? We were just talking about this before the event started. I'm kind of not in a great place. I've, let me see. The last book I read, I believe, was uh, it's an advanced uh, reading copy of Suketu Mehta's book on immigrants. I think it's called, what is it? Immigrants, a Manifesto, or something like that. Yeah. I don't think I know. It's good. It's pretty good. It feels... That sounds like a no to me, people. <laughs> Scoop. <laughs> no, I'm just Hastily kidding. Hastily written. Hastily written. I like that. Okay. <laughs> what is the last <laughs> What is the last TV show you binge-watched? Rami you... on Hulu. What is it called? Rami. Have I, am I the only you person who doesn't watch know this? It. You have to watch this on I Hulu. I just finished Pen15, which is the... the or Penis. <laughs> Do you know that show? That was great. But that's, so I'm still on that. But Rami. Rami. It's okay. about, so it's, I think he's a comedian. As it's Rami Youssef and it's, it's basically his life. He's from New Jersey and it's about him and his family. And it's got these, uh, do you know the actress Hiyam Abbas? She plays oh, his yeah. mother and she's so wonderful. There's one episode that's devoted to her. Uh, but the show, it's, I think it's 10 episodes. It's kind of, yeah, I watched it in a couple of days. Is it drama? No, it's comedy. No, it's comedy. Okay, nice. Yeah. I'll watch it. That's it's exciting. Fun, yeah. This is something, do you read your reviews? I feel like people always want to know that. Oh, we should talk about this. So I read all of my reviews very religiously for the first three books. And then this one, I'm like, you know. Oh my gosh, you I, stopped. I stopped for this one. Wow. Because I was like, I can't take it anymore. The truth is, is that there's only like maybe three people whose criticism I care <laughs> I'm like one of those uh, awful people who reads the last Goodreads review on the last page of I will, the... Well, that, why, I, and it's a terrible think, feeling. I know I shouldn't be doing it, but, but I'm like... But why do you think I decided not to read the review? So this, I know, but is, I got to... I, I felt better because I read Toni Morrison's Paris Review interview. Yes. And she's like, I got to know what's going on. I got to know what people are saying. Oh, my God. So, and I was like, well, if it's good enough for Toni, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did feel that way with the first three. But then with this one, I think when the book was still just out in ARCs, like somebody went on Goodreads and said how terrible it was. And oh, I was no. like, I cannot go through this. I cannot go through this with this book. Well, and you're in a much more vulnerable yeah, position than I am. Yeah, because you are. You really are in a very, very emotionally vulnerable state. When a book is coming out, you're kind of saying goodbye to the whole process, and you're getting ready to start the next thing. And it's just not a good frame of mind to be reading the reviews. So what I do is whenever my publicist sends me the reviews, she has, like, the full quote. I take that. <laughs> I put it on Twitter with the link, and, and that's it. But I haven't been reading them. What I might do is after this whole thing is done and I'm done with whatever I'm working on right now then I will read them but. yes of course the best my favorites are the Goodreads reviews that are like one star would not load on my Kindle and I'm like come on <laughs> I'm trying to get a good rating here just back off um do you have this is something that I feel like is always asked do you have a writing ritual is it ad hoc is it every morning at a certain time I mean what is it well, every morning, yes. I, I So I have breakfast. I drop off my kid at school. I read the news and despair at the state of the world. <laughs> so that is Just very the morning ablution. That <laughs> that's basically I have to do this every day. And then at some point, around 10 uh, or 11, after I've attempted and failed to read the entire internet, <laughs> then I finally sit down and write. We'll uh, beat this thing one day. The, yes, until we'll the end of the day. But yeah, I do it every day. So I was going to ask that. What's your social, like, what's the first social media app you open in the morning? I think this is such this a good, like, first really date question. Bad, but I should probably Twitter. get divorced and start dating. No, it's no, it's Twitter. But, but I, I. I'm Twitter, too. Yeah. But I feel like most people are Instagram. No, no. Steph's Yelp. Twitter. Twitter, yeah, it's like crack. And but but you know, this is the thing. Like I've I've done this before, where if you delete the app from your phone, I did that I and it doesn't work. I 
actually, I'm pretty good once I, but then I'm good for like six months and then I go back. So, but yeah. 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 Okay. So no, Twitter. Twitter. Interesting. Yeah. Um, this is kind of in like the favorite authors thing, which when anyone asks me that, I immediately forget that I've ever written a, yes. or read a book. <laughs> That's um, but is there a book that you can think back on where you were like, oh, I'm, I want to be a, a writer. I mean, this is like, this is what I want. Oh. Or is there, is that, is it too hard to trace that kind of like it, filament? Well, I mean, in my case, it's such a sort of like, because you're not original, you're francophone originally. Yes, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm saying it's it's sort of such a sort of difficult question to answer. I started reading books uh, in French when I was uh, a child, and ca so came to my love of literature through French. And I really probably didn't start reading books in English until I was in freshman year of college. Um, so I majored in English, and that's when we start. I, I guess yeah, I didn't assign anything in high school in English. Um, so it's kind of a difficult question to answer. Um, and also because so much of it is sort of wrapped up in how we were, by we, I mean Moroccans, were represented in sort of like French books that we were reading. So one of the examples I give is like, you know, reading Tintin as a child, which was my favorite comic book. And really rooting for Tintin, and it never once occurred to you that you know the native in those books is you. Well, and, that's what Chinaway Achebe yeah, talks yeah. about. He's like you're always rooting for the the yeah. English person, yeah. of course. Yeah. That's the... So so even like this this idea that books are teaching you to have empathy with the person who literally colonizes your entire yeah. continent, and that you're rooting for them. Uh, this is why I I have so little patience for people who you you know think that literature is completely apolitical or that reading is apolitical like because when you look at my reading experience it was absolutely political and had uh, consequences you know on on sort of the psyche of that's my the, psyche and it's the, the, the subaltern yeah question yeah exactly. no that's that's fascinating <laughs> no no I think that's a fascinating answer um I'm almost done and you guys can ask much better questions than my own um I am going okay blah, 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 blah. oh if you could snap your fingers and be any place on Earth, maybe with Alex or you know whoever. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> where would it be? I'm always. I, this is like a really dumb question, but it leads to interesting answers because people are really have to search their souls. Yes. Oh, anywhere on. Except like half of people will just say Paris. <laughs> no, I, I, I would definitely not say. Paris. <laughs> um, I guess in Hawaii. I guess I would say huh. in Hawaii, and he would say, I know what he would say. I know he'd be like on top of some mountain. He's a major hiker. R on top of a mountain? Yes. Yeah, some like oh. mountain that it'll take me, like I have to carry a backpack <laughs> for like three days and be miserable and crying all the way to the top. That's where he wants to well, go. <laughs> you sound like a great husband. <laughs> um, I want to end on this because this is a question that obsesses me, and then I want these guys to ask some questions. But I think all the time about, there's a great Flannery O'Connor quote that the writer can choose to write about whatever she wishes, but she can't chooses she can't choose what she makes come alive. And I was wondering if having you know, I reread the Moore's account and I've read your your first two books. I wonder what for you is that thing. I mean, I, there's not even a word for it. Like the da sign that is is your that you can't escape from that you that you can make come alive. Like what is your the theme that runs through your books? Oh, I would say it is basically crossing borders. It's every book involves uh. a person going from going from either physically from one place to another, like from even within the city, from one part of the city or one social class to another. Well, like, like literally the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then with the Moore's account, he gets brought to 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 America, and then with 
these people in in this book, all of them have been displaced somehow at some point in their lives. So I would even say Coleman, that, even yes, yes, the, even, her. even the police the police officer. And it wasn't. This is the, this is the insane part about all this. When I was working on Coleman and kind of like building her backstory, I didn't even realize that I that I was making her be from one coast and moving to here. I just needed her to kind of be new at the station, and so. <laughs> <laughs> And so then it and then it became this whole thing, and then I realized, oh my God, they're all they're all from somewhere else. Uh, so I would say yes. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I, this is truly an honor for me. As I said at the outset, I think we're in the presence of one of America's truly great writers. So please give Leila Lalami a round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely conversation. Very fun. Questions. Oh. I mean, I think with this book, I, it was just stubbornness that I had decided to write it in the third person, just to kind of be different from the previous one. Um, and it's interesting, this, and I knew something was kind of off about it, but I didn't know what it was, and then it turns out, you know, it had to be in the first person. But anyway, um, in terms of the personal and the political, it's so interesting to me because I don't, um, every time I try to write about like I could, I personally could write about a canvas that's a particular color, like say it's red, and I could describe how beautiful it is, and I can guarantee you that a critic <laughs> review and it would say that it was a political statement. Like I feel like my entire existence is political and is perceived in political terms because of who I am in this country. So it's sort of inescapable. And then the other thing is that I do feel this. I do feel that like that burden of like the political in my life every day. I feel it every day. Every day when I open the newspaper, I'm told that, you know, like, you know, you're banning Muslims or there's, you know, like there's, there's that sense of constant um, rejection. And so, so I, I feel like it's inescapable in the writing. Like I can't really write about lives that are not touched by the political just because my life is constantly touched by it. So I don't, I don't know what it's like to live a life that's not touched by the political, if that makes any sense. And so in writing, that's, that's all I know how to write. Maybe one of the accidentally healthy things about 2016 is that no one can now say they live an apolitical life. You can't be like, I'm not interested in politics mm -hmm. because politics is interested it's interesting in you. you. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yes, Steph? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted in the book to sort of keep the family at the center of it. So I knew I, they all had to have a particular section. And she was sort of the sister. And I, I confess I didn't want to write like a series of sections from her point of view. And so I thought if I'm going to do only one section, how would I do it? And I knew that she was sort of carrying a secret. And I also knew that 
her life, like she's really chafing under the burden of that, of perfection that her mother essentially has imposed on her. Um, and so I think in the second person offered the best way of showing that disconnect between the perfect her that she presents to the world and that she feels um, obligated to perform for the rest of the world and then her own self with all of its flaws. And so the second person was the best way to do that. That's fascinating because, mm. so in other words, her presentation to the world is her identity in a way, is her first person. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, but, but it is told in this, I, I don't know how to, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great question and yeah. answer. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's kind of similar to what Steph is asking, really. Um, the the In terms of some of them becoming more interesting as they went along, for sure, that happened. Mm -hmm. And I had to decide, well, this character is the detective, and we kind of, we know what role she's playing in the story. I want her to have a personal life because this investigation, and that's another thing that the book does, is it takes the same event, which is the hit and run, and sort of recontextualize it for each character in a different way. So for the detective, it's just like Tuesday morning and that's the case that's been assigned to her. And for the mother, obviously, it's she's a widow now. It's a tragedy. And so for each person, it's a, it's just a different... For the, for the witness, it's a moral dilemma. Everybody has, has it, it. It means something to different people. Um, and so Coleman was really interesting to me and I started, you know, wanting to write more about her and I kind of had to sort of stay in a way... It's, keep her in, in in the length of her chapter so it wouldn't it wouldn't kind of overwhelm the story because the story's not ultimately completely about her. She is she plays one part in it. But other than that, I'm trying to think, yeah, I didn't cut anything. I yeah, I didn't cut anything. I moved things around a lot, a lot, um, shifting the order of things and when things get revealed and who gets to speak when but I didn't end up, I don't think I ended up cutting. Well, and it's jarring when Dries, Dries yes, speaks. Yes, speaks. Because you're, it's a little bit Spoon River and thought. I mean, you're yes. like, huh, is this guy dead? Is yes. <laughs> and that that's another thing that just It was kind of, of a cool feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was, I was writing and I'm like, I wonder, you know, is it okay to do this? And I'm like, yeah, it's okay, it's fiction. <laughs> it's fiction. I'm I like, he gets me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was fun. I, I mean, I had great fun, um, experimenting with the voices. That was, yeah, it was really great fun. In terms of doing research, did you feel undocumented and how did you connect that to the role that I mean, the book was a process? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is the, the foolishness of thinking that if something is set in the here and now that you don't need to do research because it's not true, you do need to research it, yeah. So for example, with a hit and run, okay, seems simple enough, somebody's walking, they get hit by a car, they die, right? Like what is there to research? But actually, depends on the speed of the car, depends on the type of vehicle, you know, you could end up with completely different um, injuries if you want it to be a fatality and you also want the vehicle to be able to make a left and disappear into the night, it has to be a particular kind of vehicle. 
So, and I didn't know that. And so <laughs> as I started working on the book, I was like, okay, I hope this works, but I better run it by a friend of mine um, who's actually a, a journalist and a phenomenal well, fact checker. No, <laughs> I only t I'm only committed to my art so <laughs> so much, not to that level. <laughs> um, and so I talked to, so he connected me with this guy who serves, for example, as an expert witness in in accident trials, and that's literally what he does. So he read the whole thing, and he, you know, uh, sort of clued me in about what kind of vehicle I needed. I talked to the DA uh, in the uh, prosecutor's office, good friend of mine that I socialize with every day. Uh, for the Iraq war vet storyline, I've just read a phenomenal amount of material about the Iraq war. I've been reading about it since 2003, like all the journalism about it. And, but I've also read a lot of the books that came out of that war, like the novels and short story collections, so I read a lot of those. Um, with, let's see, what else? With the undocumented, I know several undocumented people personally, so I have <laughs> plenty of access that way. Um, and then with the cop, I took, um, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy in San Bernardino County mm -hmm. for like an entire 12-hour shift. And, and it was, you know, all of these were really great research experiences. I visited the high school that's in that little town. Um, gave a talk there, so it just so, so I can kind of see what the high school <laughs> looked like. Um, so I did I did end up doing a bit more research than I anticipated when I started it because again very naive thinking yeah this one is not going to require research but of course they always do. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> in, in, in any experience of this location, y you think that you're the same you, and you've just arrived and been put in a new place, but you're still the same person. And what happens in short order is you realize that you're transforming in reaction to sort of the landscape in which you've been put in. So I am not the same person that I was before I arrived in Los Angeles and lived here and made friends here. and. So I've been transformed just by being in this uh, place. So one of the things that I'm interested in, in, that I was interested in both in the Moore's account and in this one, is like looking at the connection between identity formation and landscape. Like how our sense of selves are built out of our connection to our environment. Um, and, it, and I, you know, it sounds like, oh, but it's, it's something that you sort of come to as you're writing and you realize that that's what you're doing. It's not necessarily something that's conscious or that was uh, not conscious, but it wasn't something that was deliberate. It's something that I realized as I was working on the book that that's what was happening. Um, and, and what that meant is that I became even more interested in landscape because of that and mm. that how it can affect us. One more. Someone be brave.
Hmm. Well, that's interesting because if that's the case, then that would explain why I got rid of the <laughs> <laughs> why I tossed the novel that I was working on before uh, Hope. Um, it I don't find myself all that interesting to write about, and. Um, so, I mean, I use elements of my life, obviously, as inspiration or something to start a story, but I don't, I'm not, you know, so I, I don't really see novels as a place to sort of put, you know, my own life in them. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but before Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits was published, I had written another book that I tossed. Uh, it was no good. And... So we'll never know, I guess, whether it's the pouring out of all my experiences into my first book. But I obviously have never been on a lifeboat crossing the Mediterranean, but that's what my first book was about. Well, they, they asked Nabokov to write a, uh, like a, what's the word, a prologue to his first novel, like many years later. And he said, well, this isn't a good book. You have to write one book to get rid of yourself. <laughs> and they're like, well, this isn't what we're looking for. <laughs> And he was like, you can have that or nothing. And so they just published that in front of Mary. And ironically, he went back to writing about himself at the very end of the book. Anyway, um, lay a little on me, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for that conversation. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.